If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Job, chapter number one. Job, chapter number one. We're continuing our series on marriage, family, and the gospel. This morning will be a little different, as will next Sunday morning, Lord willing, in that we have been looking at passages primarily over the past few weeks that have been instructive. In other words, there are propositional truth statements there that say this is what you should do. This is how it should be. What we have in the case of Job chapters 1 and 2 is an example, a real-life person whose experience we get the privilege of looking into. Now, the primary purpose behind the book of Job, and for that matter, Job chapters 1 and 2, is to help us to understand the place of suffering in the human experience. Now, the book of Job answers a great question that's sort of hanging over the Bible and really hanging over the Old Testament. If God has said, if you obey, he will bless. If you disobey, he will curse. How do we understand those who are at least by appearance obeying, but are at the same time suffering? And how do we deal with those who appear to be blessed, but by appearance are disobedient? Job helps us in establishing an altogether different category for those who are walking faithfully with God, yet suffer real tragedy, real hardship, experience real pain for their greater good in the end, but most importantly, for the glory of the God who has saved us from our sin. Now, along the way, we have the privilege of observing Job's conduct, his interaction with his children, and in chapter 2, his interactions with his wife. And what we see in those interactions is good and noble and just and worthy of our emulation. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. If you found your way there, stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, beginning in verse number 1, there was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. 
However, you must not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabians swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, a lightning storm struck from heaven. It burned up the sheep and the servants and devoured them. I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on the young people so that they died, and I alone have escaped to tell. Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. Throughout all of this, Job did not sin nor blame God for anything. One day, the sons of God came again to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? From roaming through the earth, Satan answered him, and walking around on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. He still retains his integrity, even though you incited me against him to destroy him without just cause. Skin for skin, Satan answered the Lord. A man will give up everything he owns in exchange for his life. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord told Satan, he is in your power, only spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and infected Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There really is no way to measure the tragedy experienced by Job and his family in our passage. The only reason that we might account for our being no more moved by this reading than what we really are is the historical distance between us and Job. It is an easy thing at times for us to disconnect ourselves from the reality that what we have read in our text is very real historical account of suffering that is virtually unmatched in the world. We have a man losing his estate, and it was a great estate. We have some points of reference for this in the culture, right? In the past couple of decades, there have been examples of Ponzi schemes and various other fraudulent practices that have robbed hundreds and 
even thousands of people of a lifetime of investment and preparation for retirement, men and women who labored their life long in the hopes of enjoying some degree of comfort in their latter years, having the rug snatched from beneath them by a criminal who had been at work for nefarious purposes, allegedly on their behalf for quite some time. We can, to some extent, understand the sting of all that we possessed being jerked away in an instant. We have, in some instances, experienced the loss of a child or someone that we lost, uh, loved dearly, or maybe we've known someone who lost someone that they loved dearly, but it is rare to even hear of a tragedy that rises to the level of what Job experienced with the loss of not one, not two, not three, but ten children. Job essentially loses his entire family in one fail swoop. And in the midst of that, demonstrates the kind of character that I would hope and pray God would afford me the strength to demonstrate under far lesser circumstances than Job. Look at verse number one. The Bible says here, there was a man in the country of Uz named Job. He was a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, we have a tendency as Christians when we read the Bible to want to make examples out of everybody, right? Like we want our boys to be like David. Well, you really don't want your boys to be like David, right? And we want our girls to be like Esther. You really don't want your girls. I remember encountering this and sort of coming to grips with this early on as a pastor, as a Bible study in our church about being like Esther. If you don't know the book of Esther, Esther was a part of the ancient Near Eastern version of The Bachelor long before NBC was ever thought in anyone's <laughs> mind. You do not want your daughters to be like Esther in all of their life. And we really should be cautious about making examples out of any biblical character whose name is not Jesus. But here we have an example of one who is commended to us as an example. Note again the way Job is described. He is described here as a man of perfect integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. And that is not just the voice of the narrator speaking. Later in our passage, it is God who assesses Job as blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. In round one of his temptation, Job is described as perfect in integrity, one who fears God and shuns evil. And even after the loss of his stuff in his response to this tragedy, Job's described as one who fears God and shuns evil. We have the language in our culture of good boys and good girls and good old boys and good old girls, but our assessment often intends something that is wildly different than what is described here of Job. None of us rise to this level of evaluation. Job is a man determined by God, declared by God as blameless and upright, who fears God and shuns evil. There are certain aspects of his character, therefore, that are worthy of our modeling after. And one of the ways that Job 1 and 2 shows us the righteous nature of Job's life is by affording us the privilege of peering in to his family interactions. Look at verse 2. The Bible says here he had seven sons and three daughters. His estate included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 
500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large number of servants. Job was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now again, Job is a historical figure with historical children and a historical estate. He was historically, at this moment in time, the greatest in all of the East. But the way his family is presented here, in other words, the way the makeup of his family is cast, is intended, it is designed for us to see that Job is the ideal family man with the ideal family. He has seven sons. That's the perfect number. He has three daughters. That's the perfect number. He has a total of 10 children. It's the perfect number. Job's family is ideal. It is just what we might hope and dream for. It's the 1980s sitcom family. I mean, they've got all of their ducks in a row. It's the kind of family that you might hope and dream for, except for the part about having 10 kids, right? Job is presented here as the ideal man with the ideal family, the greatest man among all the people of the East. In verse 4, the Bible says, his sons used to take turns having banquets at their home. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. Now, there are some principles in these five verses that I want us to see together. We won't get done. I always, I always say that the 11 o'clock service is my favorite service, right? Y'all are my favorite group because I can preach as long as I want to now. Like, I got, I got another group coming all morning long, but when I get to 11, buddy, we can let it rip. But this morning, you're going to be limited to what I could get in in the first service, and we're going to take it up again on next Sunday, Lord willing. We're going to get this far. And what you're going to see in verses 1 through 5 are some principles from Job's life that we get the privilege of seeing applied in Job's life in next week's passage as we look at verses 6 and following, applied in some really powerful ways. The first and perhaps the most notable attribute of Job's life we see in our passage is this. Job is a devout man. Job is devoted to his God. We see this really clearly applied in next week's passage, as I've said, the passage that we've read already together. Even when wave after wave of suffering and tragedy are washing over the life of Job, he remains steadfast in his commitment to God. Job is firmly committed to God. Can I say to you moms and dads, within the context of our discussing marriage and family issues, this is all that God requires of us that we be faithfully and firmly devoted to him. We can overcomplicate some really simple stuff sometimes, but this is ultimately what God requires of us, that we love him with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, that we be devoted to him. And when we're devoted to him, which by the way is an imperfect science for us, because we can foul it up in a myriad of ways, but in the midst of that, our devotion to him proves to have eternal value and even earthly significance in the lives of our family, and especially of our children. 
I, I can think back over my own father's experience and now as an adult could chronicle for you his own personal shortcomings. And in spite of those shortcomings, at the same time, I could talk to you from now until forever about the indelible impressions that he made on my life in some of the most seemingly insignificant ways, things that have mattered significantly, substantially in my own personal experience. The single best thing that you can do for your marriage and for your family is to be faithfully and fully devoted to the God of heaven. Love him with all of your heart. Let's don't overcomplicate things. Like sometimes this is sort of a culture where we, we feel as though we need to counsel through all of these somewhat complex issues. When really there's a brass tacks answer to our issues, we devote ourselves to Christ and to Christ alone. And when we do, everything else has a way of finding its place. The product of Job's devotion to God is a deep and abiding devotion to his family. His devotion to God is illustrated in the fact that God commends Job to Satan. Did you pick up on that in our passage? Satan comes, and God says, where have you been? Not as though he doesn't know. There's an inquiry that's underway here, an investigation. Satan says, walking through the earth. This is the language that Peter echoes in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he says, Satan prowls about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And God says, by the way, have you considered my servant Job? Note that God did not say, Job has been bad. What I'd like you to do is go meddle with his life. Rather, he says, Job is blameless and upright who fears God and shuns evil. Have you considered my servant Job? Job is in a position as a righteous man to best demonstrate this firm allegiance to God and the glory that God receives when we give ourselves to him with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. It's not unrighteousness in Job's life that qualifies him for suffering. It's righteousness that qualifies Job. It is as though the intruder has come into the house and the homeowner says, by the way, our most precious jewels are just over here. It's the way that God chooses to demonstrate his great love toward us and the value that he holds in our eyes as our hearts are open to him through the power of the gospel. Job is devoted to God. Maybe more importantly, God is devoted to Job. The product of that devotion is a deep and abiding commitment, a devotion to his family. See the interest that Job takes in his children here, his dealings with his wife in chapter 2, which we'll not get to today, are beautiful. She says, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Here's a husband pro tip. There's a lot of difference between saying, you foolish woman, and saying, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. There's a world of difference there. Not, not only is Job committed to his wife, and that's illustrated by his steadfastness over time, even in the midst of tragedy, but he's deeply committed to the well-being, the rearing, the raising of his children. Look to verse number four. The Bible says here, his sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. And this was Job's regular practice. 
Job is so concerned for the well-being of his children that he is consistent in his prayer for them and the offering of sacrifices on their behalf and their being gathered together that he might intercede on their behalf. He is known here not only by his devotion to God, but also by his devotion to his family. It seems that these two characteristic traits are the two primary characteristic traits that commend Job to us as just what he's described as a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. All of the stuff seems to be extra. Job is a wealthy man. Job has a great deal of material wealth. Job's possessions are great. Never is there any indication that Job's possessions have taken ownership over him, but there can be no mistaking that his standing is substantial. All of this secondary to his devotion to God and his devotion to family. Not only do we have in verses 4 and 5 a demonstration of Job's devotion to his family, we have here an illustration of, of a characteristic trait in Job that I find to be quite appealing because there's not much of this going around these days. Jo Job is not only a, a devout man, he is a discerning man. In other words, Job has the ability to look into the gray and to see the black and white. Go back to verses 4 and 5. His sons used to take turns having banquets at their homes. They would send an invitation to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Whenever a round of banqueting was over, Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned, having cursed God in their hearts. Are you following what's unfolding here? Job is wise enough to know that certain activities could make his children vulnerable to sin. That there could be certain company, that there could be certain activities, a certain setting, not conducive to righteousness, but unrighteousness. Moms and dads, if you make a determination about some friend that you see, see beginning to hang around with your child or you hear about a certain gathering and you determine that gathering to not be in the best interest of your child, you have not violated the command of Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. Rather, you are initiating or employing, you are utilizing the gift and ability of discernment, which is your distinct responsibility to exercise as a parent. Be wise, be discerning in the decisions that you make about the well-being of your children. There are certain activities that make our children vulnerable to sin. There are certain activities that are conducive to righteousness. There are things you do that help you walk with Jesus. And there are things you do that help you walk with the devil. And it doesn't always take a seminary degree to be able to distinguish between the two. It just takes the application of the Holy Spirit in your life, some wisdom on your part, some discernment, some involvement in the lives of your children, some involvement in the lives of those around your children, to be aware, to be privy to all that's unfolding. Be wise enough to know what activities are in their best interest and which ones are not. Job has the capacity for discerning between one and the other. And we must do a better job in this area. B behind every group of troublemaking, problematic young people, they're in every community, right? There's always, there's always a parent or parents or a group of parents 
who, who have allowed in the name of being a friend to their child their brain to roll completely out of the back of their head and cease in exercising any discernment whatsoever. They're always pretty easy to identify, right? It's the house where all the kids want to hang out. That's always a bad place. It, it's, it's very rare that all the kids... The, teenagers don't typically like to hang out where you have to obey rules. But if there's an alternative option where there are no rules, where there are no restraints, ordinarily that's a bad thing. If you don't believe me, just go hang out a while. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've just been marked by sin and I'm cynical over the course of time. But I could take you back to every one of those houses through my teenage years. A lot of times it was my house if you want to know the truth about it. Be wise, be discerning, make good decisions about the well-being of the children that God has entrusted to you. Your kids don't need another buddy. They've got plenty of them. They need a father and they need a mother who will help them to make good decisions even when they themselves don't want to make good decisions on their own. Now, in the case of Job, his children seem to be young adults. They have their own houses and they're referred to as young people. And when they get to be young adults, sometimes there are things that we can't control, like the banquets described in verse number four. When they get together in these banquets, concern is stirred in the heart of Job, and he is fearful that in that setting, they will sin and curse God in their hearts. So Job makes a practice. Anytime one of these banquets happens, that immediately after he gathers the children together, he would send for them and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all of them, fearful that somehow a decision that they made in the heat of the moment, in the midst of that activity not conducive to righteousness, that they might have done something to put them at odds with the God of heaven, to compromise their standing with God. Job is not only devout and discerning, he is disciplined about this practice. He prays for his children. He prays for their salvation. By the way, this is what good moms and dads do, right? We lay hold of God and we plead that he would save them, that he would sanctify them, that he would help them to walk with Jesus. We're talking about adolescent children here which is scary enough, right? Like we can convince ourselves in early childhood and maybe even the preteen and early teenage years that we've got some control. But the day's coming when that control is gone, right? Like I went car shopping with my oldest son this week. You're talking about scary. <laughs> there, there's coming a day when, when, they, when they slip the authority that you bear over them as members of your household and enter into a cruel and wicked world all their own. And all we're left to do, all we are left to do, as if, as if this were sort of a fallback plan, all we're left to do is to prayerfully entrust them to a better father than we are, to prayerfully entrust them to the care of God who oversees every scintilla of every second of our lives. He is a good and faithful 
father. Job rises early in the morning, lays hold of God and pleads that God would save and sanctify and bless and protect them from the consequences of their own foolish decisions. Job would send for his children and purify them, rising early in the morning to offer burnt offerings for all the men. This really should go without saying, but since our focus is marriage, family, and the gospel, and we're pressing and encouraging personal evangelism, there are probably some daddies in this body who need to start their evangelistic efforts by sitting down and having a kneecap-to-kneecap and eyeball-to-eyeball conversation with their sons and daughters about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Woe unto us if we would withhold the greatest gift ever afforded us from the very children God has entrusted to our care. There's a single sentence in the close of verse 5 that I really appreciate. Here it reads, this was Job's regular practice. An even simpler translation might read, thus Job did regularly. It's just a very brief phrase in the Hebrew communicated with great simplicity here that speaks to Job's discipline. Job was a disciplined man. Now, I like discipline. I like discipline in all areas of life. In fact, if I'm not careful, I will deviate or sort of drift into, I will slide into legalism in some parts of my life. I'm not a legalist when it comes to salvation. We're saved by grace through faith and grace through faith alone. But in virtually every other part of my life, I'm kind of a little bit legalist if you don't watch me, right? I have a very set way that I want things to go at the beginning of my day. There are certain things that need to unfold in a certain order in my morning in order for me to be happy and approachable and glad-hearted and all of those things, right? Before I can have a conversation with other human beings, there are certain things I need to happen for me on that given day. When I come into work in the morning, the first thing that I do is I make a checklist. And I cannot sleep at night without all of the items on that list being checked off that day. In fact, if I do something that's not on the list, I'll put it on the list just so I have the joy of checking it off on my little list. I like discipline in every area of life. But what's being described in Job here is is discipline in praying for and seeking the sanctification of the family that God has entrusted to him. Let me say that again. Job is disciplined in praying for and seeking out the sanctification of the family that God has entrusted to him. When I, when I was saved, of course, I, you know, I was saved, and you're, we're all naive, and we, we think everybody's serious about this whole business of following after Jesus. If, if this is a big enough deal that my eternity hangs on this, I, I want to be serious about this in all parts of my life. I didn't know about cultural Christianity and nominal Christians and hangers-on and all of those sorts of things. And so we just began to observe our, our pastor and his family and, and what they did, and they really modeled these principles very, very well. In my estimation, it, he, he did a remarkable job and continues to do a remarkable job at discipling his family and encouraging his children, two girls and a boy, and now grandchildren to love Jesus. And, and their, their home and their home activities, and from, from our perspective, for Brandy and me, always seem to revolve around the reading, study, and application of God's Word. And I was just foolish enough to believe that this was true for everybody. Like, I thought this is what everybody did. And the reality is, if you could back up 100 years and spend the evening with a Christian family, 
there's a strong likelihood that someone would have gotten out the family Bible, read a passage, some discussion of that passage would have ensued, and the family would have prayed together to to end the day. The sad reality is that if you spent the evening at most Christian pastors' homes today, that would not be the kind of conclusion to the day that you would observe. And I'm telling you this morning, listen to me, dads, listen to me, fathers, listen to me, husbands, listen to me, for that matter, mamas and children. Our day, our day ought to both begin and end with a meditation on God's Word and a moment of quiet, contemplative prayer with God. A part of that morning routine for me better be prayer or I'm not going to be the best person on that day, right? And I want to end the day by thanking God for his favor over my life and his care and provision. Spending time with God in prayer, spending time in God's word makes me a better man through the course of the day, day by day and day by day. Now, some of you may know me well enough to go, well, that ain't all that good, you know? Well, it could be a whole lot worse. Trust me, it could be a whole lot worse, right? You know the experience. If you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time whatsoever, you know the different course that your day can take dependent upon the time that you either did or did not spend with him that morning. And the experience of your children is no different than yours. How can you expect that those children are going to be kingdom children at school or at play, whatever it is that they do that day, if you're just getting them up in the morning with screams and shouts, throwing clothes on them, slinging a waffle in their direction, and dropping them off at the bus stop? They need the same spiritual nourishment that you need. How can we expect that they can be good kingdom citizens if the word of God is never read over their life, if there's never any effort at instilling in them Christian principles and values? How can we expect that they can withstand the wiles of Satan if there's no understanding of Christian doctrine and the gospel and how we are to stand guard against the temptations of this day? We have a distinct responsibility to shepherd well, to disciple well, the children that God has entrusted unto us. And everything else, it seems, takes priority over that. That's the last thing on the list. And the first thing that gets disregarded or outright discarded if we've less than the ideal amount of time to commit to that particular exercise. Brothers and sisters, we have got to be more disciplined with regards to the reading, study, and application of God's Word in our lives and the lives of those that God has entrusted to our care. How radically different would your family look if you began each day praying that God would bless and grant the Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit, and help you walk worthy of your calling? How different would your family's evenings look if that evening was oriented around the reading and application of God's Word? I would suggest to you it would look wildly different. Wildly different. You'll find it hard to fight with people you're praying for. And you'll either get over your hissy fit Or you'll put that Bible away, but you're going to make a decision between one or the other. How different would our homes, how different would our experience, how how different would our children be if we made this our customary practice in our home? And this is not 400-level Christianity. This is just what Jesus' people do. We orient our lives around the reading, study, and application of God's Word. The Bible says here, thus Job did regularly. 
I'll go beyond that. This is the era, the age of specialization, right? When, when I was a kid in rural Mississippi, a little behind the rest of the world, we, we had one old doctor. We called him Old Dr. Booth. That was to distinguish him from young Dr. Booth. And old Dr. Booth could do anything you wanted him to do in the back of that metal building that was his clinic, right? If your arm was broken, he could fix it in the clinic. If your appendix needed taken out, he could fix it in the clinic. It didn't matter. He could do it all in the clinic. And he was a genius. And then the, the you know, younger one was a little more specialized. Now you go to 15 different doctors to find the one that works on that specific bone or to take that particular shape of appendix out on that day of the week under those distinct circumstances. And they all send you bills, right? There is an extent to which specialization is a good thing. Like even within the body, we have ministers assigned to distinct demographic groups within the church. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Brothers and sisters, you as husbands and wives, as mothers and fathers, have been, have been gifted have been specialized by God to make disciples of the children that God has entrusted to you. You can do something in the lives of those children that no other person can do. If, if you think that you can send your children to the student ministry of our church and, and they're going to they're gonna produce, that student ministry is going to produce for you full-fledged followers of Jesus, it might. But the likelihood is they're going to follow more closely after what they see exemplified in you than what they experience for a couple of hours on the campus. If you think that you're going to be able to just send your children to children's church and all will be well with their soul. They'll be full-fledged followers of Jesus. They might, but they might not. They're far more likely to follow after what they see patterned at home in mom and dad. If you think that you can send your little ones to preschool and their heart is going to be acceptably conditioned to receive the good seed of the gospel so that one day they become full-fledged followers of Jesus, they might. But the likelihood is that they're going to follow more closely after your example. God has called you and designed the family such that you and you alone can best minister to the needs of the children that God has entrusted to you. Do you see why it is so critically important that we have discipline in our lives when it comes to bringing our children up in the training and the admonition of the Lord? husbands, fathers, come in close. Although our wives, mothers may share in these responsibilities, the buck stops with you and me when it comes to the reading and the study and the application of God's Word. I'm going to tell you why it doesn't happen in a lot of homes. Because it is an awkward thing and there is a vulnerability that comes with opening God's Word and reading it aloud in the presence of those who know us best. It is especially awkward, and there is a special vulnerability that comes when we've not been doing what God's Word clearly says we should do. In inside of every adult man is a five-year-old boy's ego waiting for an opportunity to be offended at something that his wife or children say. About, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, I, I preached from this passage. I was thinking about this this morning. I preached from this passage. 
And my charge to our church at that time was that the men of our church would commit themselves to reading the Bible and praying with their families. And and that was sort of the way we left it. I I, I made it really plain, really simple, and and really specific. The goal is, here's what we're going to determine to do, and then we we may allow this to grow into more. But right now, our commitment is going to be, because of that awkwardness, because of that vulnerability, because of the challenges that sometimes come with that, we're going to read one chapter and, and we even address the issue of sometimes we may not feel as confident in our reading abilities. And so now you don't even have to. You, you don't even have to read it out loud. You just pull it up on your iPhone and hit play, right? And someone else in a galaxy far, far away reads the passage for you, you know. It just reads it out loud. So, so push play or read the chapter and then pray and then just dismiss. No, no more expectation than that. It's just where we're going to start. And over the course of time, organically, you let that grow into more than that for your family. He even offered some alternatives, some lazy ways. Sometimes when I come home at the end of the day, all my words have been used up, and I don't want to talk to anybody. Any of you men relate to that? Can I get a witness here? Some of you wives saying, yeah, we know all about that too. Now now we have all of this technology and smart televisions and YouTube and and a thousand faithful gospel preachers that are available. There have been days we come home, I'm tired, and I I just cannot deal with that at this moment. And we just put a 10-minute sermon clip on and then have a little discussion about that as a family. There are too many easy ways to ensure that your children are being instructed in the things of God in any event. About two years passed by after that Sunday and that charge was given. And I I had a father, a husband and a father from our church, make an appointment to come and to see me. And he sat down and he, he said, you, you remember that sermon? And I said, yeah, I, I remember that sermon. And he said, here's what happened. He, he said, we went home that day and uh, I did just what you told me to do. I got my Bible out and I read a chapter and I prayed. And he said, when we finished praying and we dismissed our family gathering, my wife walked by and she said, you read too much. And she said it in that snarky way that was meant to be a a barb, right? And he said, it's been two years since I opened the Bible in the presence of my family. It, It doesn't take much because we are so childish as men sometimes, especially when it comes to issues like this that make us feel so susceptible to criticism. But you'll make a decision between your pride and arrogance and the well-being of your family, and you'll make it today. You'll make it today. I say that both as a charge to husbands and fathers to be faithful in the exercise of discipleship and discipline within the context of their family and for the faith, but also say that as a word of encouragement and challenge to wives, to nurture and encourage, never seek to deflate your husband in his efforts to see to it that you and your children walk faithfully with Jesus. His ego, like mine, is a very fragile thing. It needs all of the encouragement, especially when it comes to these issues that he can find. It is amazing to me how we can beat our chest and be muscles and machismo until it comes to these kinds of issues, but we can be weak and passive and mealy-mouthed and spineless when it comes to the discipleship of our family. Encourage and help the man that God has entrusted to you. And men, grow up and come away from your pride, come away from your ego, and insist that Jesus would be Lord, Lord and Savior and celebrated in your home. Job is devout, discerning, and disciplined in his ways. 
You'll have to wait till next week for the rest. But I want to close this way. I, I want us to revisit this idea of Job's devotion to God and the simplicity of just that, how simple it is, what a basic, what a fundamental thing it is that Job was devoted to God and, and the product of that was his devotion to family. I, I realize that sometimes we can complicate things in unhelpful ways, but I want you to hear clearly this morning that the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to come away from the things of this world and devote yourself fully to Jesus. I've been reminded a few times in the last couple of weeks in gospel conversations of, of how often people can use Christian language, talk about church stuff, even participate in the worship of Jesus without an understanding of the gospel. Like, I find myself asking, has there been a moment in time in your life when you broke with the things of this world, you just turned away from sin and made a firm commitment to follow Jesus? And even on the part of some who might identify with a church, they, I go to this church, I do this, do that, they, they answer that no. There's never been that moment. There's never been that moment. Now, I'm not telling you you've got to know date, time, and place, and all of the circumstances, what, what, how the clouds were in the sky. You, n none of us remember the day we were born, right? But we're aware that we're born. We see the fruit of life, the experience of life around us. What I'm, what I'm saying to you is that becoming a Christian is not trying to be a good father. Becoming a Christian is not, I'm going to try to be a good dad. I'm going to try to be a good husband. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. All of these things are, are symptoms of who we are in our heart of hearts. Becoming a Christian is about being born again. It's, it's about that decision to break with the things of this world and determine that we're going to follow faithfully after Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you must be born again. You must be born again. And that doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by osmosis just because you hang around Christian folks or you are part of a Christian family or you go to Christian church. There has to be a moment in time in our life when we determine we will go no further with this world. From now on, I'm going to follow Jesus. That's the only way a person becomes a Christian. You must be born again. You must be born again. And until your heart and your marriage and your family has been filled up by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to continue to contend with the stale and dank and lifeless air that fills so many marriages and families and is the reason we're in such a mess as a society, as a culture as we are in today. It doesn't have to be that way by the power of the gospel. It doesn't have to be that way. We sang earlier in our service of God's grace. And I often wonder when we sing about grace or we talk about grace if we really understand what that means. Like if, if, you're, if you're leaving church today and you drive too fast to, to the Mexican restaurant and you get pulled over and the police officer doesn't write you a ticket, you will say, he showed me grace. But that is not the way God shows us grace. In fact, grace in our language is passive. It doesn't do anything. It just overlooks our indiscretion. But the kind of grace that God affords us through his son, Jesus Christ, is powerful and active. It not only grants us the forgiveness of our sin, a gift we don't deserve, 
At the same time, it empowers us to overcome the same sins again in the future. The only hope that you and I have for forgiveness of all of our misdeeds in times past is the grace of God. And the only hope that you and I have of not following the same path again every day to come is the grace of God over our life afforded us through the death of Jesus by the power of the resurrection of Jesus, granted by the call of Jesus, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and Jesus says, I will give you rest. You need only come. You need only come. Come to him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Lord, for the privilege of spending these moments together. God, I pray that you would hide the principles of, of your word away in our heart, that we might not sin against you. God, I pray for husbands and fathers and families. God, that you would help us to do what you have called us to do, that we would be the priest of our home, that you'd find us faithful before you, God. Lord, that, that come what may, we would be the strength and the stay steady hand at the wheel of the family that you've entrusted to us. We pray for grace that takes our sin away, grace that empowers us to walk worthy of the call with which we've been called. I pray that every person here would at least, Father, understand the call of the gospel, that we must turn away from the things of this world and come to Jesus. God, I pray that today might be just that day for some here, that you might be pleased to open hearts and grant the gift of faith. And as you do, may Jesus receive all the glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.